You're listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. About 900 years ago, the text of the Bible was divided into chapters and verses to make it easier to look things up. And this has no doubt helped us in a lot, a lot of different ways. It helps us to find things very easily. But almost as often as it helps us, it also hinders us from seeing things in context. And that's the case with this particular story. Before we dig into the story itself that we're going to be looking at, and we are going to dig deep into it tonight, I want to zoom out and I want to include the events of chapter 8 as well because the events of chapter 8 lead into the events of chapter 9. And so it will help us see what's happening in chapter 9 by seeing it all together. So let me paint the scene for you here as we get started. John chapter 8 first. Jesus is in Jerusalem. It's during one of the major Jewish feasts, the Feast of Tabernacles. And Jesus' custom whenever he was in Jerusalem is he would, just about on a daily basis, he would go to the temple complex and find a place to teach. Um, This is what rabbis did. They would go and find a place to teach around the temple, and they would teach their students. To this day, Jewish rabbis do that. In fact, I had the uh, blessing on one of my recent trips to Israel. I was, we had some free time, and I was by myself walking around the ruins around the Temple Mount, and there was a rabbi teaching his young male students within earshot of me, and he was speaking in English and he had an American accent. And so I was just kind of like, pretending like I wasn't listening, but I was listening. I found it fascinating uh, to hear him uh, talking. And so Jesus was no different. He would teach around the temple. Well, on this one particular morning, no sooner has Jesus sat down to teach than some of his opponents, in this case they were Pharisees, they approach Jesus and they take a woman and kind of shove her towards him and they begin to accuse her. And they say, Rabbi, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. The law says we should stone such a woman. What do you say? And what I want you to see about these men is that they are united under, let's just say it like this, they're united under a kind of satanic spell. And they want to stone this woman. But it's their way of dealing with their own fears, their own insecurities, their own self-loathing, is I'm going to project it all on a person who I deem to be in the wrong, a sinner. And so they pester Jesus about the situation. Here's what the law says. What do you say? And Jesus, at first, we're told he kneels down in the dirt and starts to write in the dirt. We don't know what he wrote. It doesn't tell us. Lots of speculation. I have my own thoughts, but I'm not preaching this sermon, this passage tonight, so I'll refrain from that. But he writes in the dirt. And they persist. They won't relent. They keep asking him, what do you say? What do you say? Come on, don't avoid the question. And Jesus brilliantly says, let him without sin cast the first stone. And just like that, the spell is broken. And one by one, they drop their stones and walk away. 
And Jesus looks at the woman and he says, does no one condemn you? She says, no one, sir. And then he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. He returns then to teaching. And it's here in John 8 that Jesus, for the first time in John's gospel, says, I am the light of the world. And he talks about how he's come to shine his light in this dark world. He's come to expose the works of the devil. He's come to expose the works of darkness. And, and speaking to some of his opponents still in the crowd, I'm just kind of paraphrasing here, but he essentially tells them, this is what you're participating in. You're participating in the work of darkness. You're participating in the, in the works of the devil. And I want to set you free from that. If you'll stick with me, if you'll abide in me and let my words abide in you, and if you abide in my words, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free from this dark way of thinking, this dark way of living, this dark way of relating to your fellow human beings. I've come to set you free. And they respond, and they say, well, actually, we're already free. We are a free people. We're free. And Jesus says, no, you're not free. In fact, the only freedom you have is the freedom to hate your neighbor. And you conspire together to, you want to stone them. You want to kill them and justify it with your own religion, with your own nationality. And this is what I want to set you free from. This is the work of the devil. And, in, and an argument ensues. It's all, it's all right there in chapter 8. An argument ensues, and it gets more and more heated until eventually, you know what they do? They pick up stones again. And now they want to stone Jesus. And that's how John chapter 8 ends. So watch this. John 8 is framed by two attempted stonings. First, they're going to stone this woman who they've accused of adultery, but Jesus breaks the spell and they drop the stones. But then as Jesus talks to them about being the light of the world and exposing the works of the devil and, and the dark foundations that their society was built upon, they become angry, and now they pick up stones again, and now they want to throw these stones at Jesus. And that begins chapter 9, where Jesus takes his disciples, and they exit the temple complex He just gets up and leaves. No sense in staying. It's fruitless. All they want to do is throw stones at him. Kind of like David. All Saul wanted to do is throw spears at him. So he's like, it's pointless. I'm leaving. Jesus leaves. He takes his disciples with them. They walk out of the temple complex. And right there is one of the nearby gates, one of the major gates into the temple mount. And, and they're exiting this gate. And right there by the gate, as I'm sure there always was, was a beggar. Just as people are walking by, walking in and out, this is a strategic place for the beggar to stay. So he's sitting there, and, and the Bible tells us that this man is blind from birth. And when the disciples notice this man who's blind from birth, their instinct is to ask Jesus a theological question. And they ask Jesus, who sinned? Who's at fault? Who can we blame? Who can we accuse? Who can we point the finger at? Is it this man or is it his parents' sin that caused him to be born blind? And now we have our third attempted stoning. The disciples want to throw stones of blame at this blind beggar at the gate. Yes, it's a rhetorical stoning. They're not literally picking up actual stones to hurl at him. But what I want you to see is it's the same spirit. It's the same thing behind it. 
Let's blame this woman and throw stones at her. Let's blame Jesus and call him a false teacher and a devil. And let's blame this man or his parents for his blind condition. The satanic impulse to blame, to accuse, is all throughout this story. And Jesus is trying to shine a light on it because we're blind to it as a human race. We live in the darkness and we don't see how commonly, how often we attempt to unite ourselves around blaming a common adversary. How we attempt to console our own fears and our own anxieties by blaming others. This is the darkness we've lived in. This is the blindness that has afflicted the human race from the very beginning. And Jesus is trying to bring light to it. He's trying to heal us of our blindness. To show us how we behave and how destructive it is, this satanic impulse to blame. This is what the book of Job is all about. The story of the book of Job in the Bible begins by telling us that Job is a righteous man who fears God and turns away from evil. And by the way, it's God himself who says that about Job. So Job doesn't need another character witness. God is Job's witness. God says right there at the very beginning, I testify that Job is a righteous man who fears me and turns away from evil. He's the most righteous man of the sons of the East. So that ends any debate before it gets started right there. Is Job a righteous man? Yes, definitively. And then as soon as we're told that, the Satan appears. Now, why do I say it like that, the Satan? Because in the book of Job, Satan is not yet a proper name. It, it was written very early. Satan is a title. It's Hasatan. It means the accuser, the blamer. And as soon as we're told Job is a righteous man, the Satan, the accuser, rises up to make accusation against Job. And shortly after, trouble ensues. And with three thunderclaps of horror, Job lose, loses everything he has. He loses his health. He loses his wealth. He loses his own children. Almost too terrible to imagine. He loses everything dear to him. And it's right there where Job's three friends enter the story. And Satan exits the story, and we don't read about him again in the entire book of Job, which is pretty astounding. The book of Job is 42 chapters long. We read about Satan in chapter 1, we read about Satan in chapter 2, and then we don't read about him again for the next 40 chapters. Satan simply disappears from the story. Or does he? In fact, I want to suggest to you Satan does not disappear from the story. He's simply channeled through Job's three friends, who we might say it like this, they are possessed by the spirit of blame, the spirit of accusation, the spirit of the Satan. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, friends of Job. And they hear about Job's plight and they want to comfort him. They want to encourage him. They want to support him. But very soon into that, they begin to feel the need to explain to Job why this has happened to him. But in fact, it's not Job they're trying to explain this to. They're trying to explain it to themselves. 
because they witness the destruction in Job's life and it triggers their own insecurities and anxieties. And they want to assure themselves and make themselves certain that such a thing could never happen to them. And so in an effort to console their anxieties and fears, they attempt to explain to Job and to themselves, Job, this is why this has happened to you. It's because there's something, there's got to be something wrong in your life. No doubt if they could, they would have quoted from the book of Proverbs. Because one of the recurring themes in the book of Proverbs is that if you live righteously and fear God, you'll live a good, blessed, happy prosperous life. I mean, you'll find dozens and dozens of verses in the book of Proverbs that say just that. Live righteously, fear God, you'll live a blessed, happy, prosperous life. And it's true. To that I say amen. It's true. Like how many of you, that's been your experience as you encountered Christ, as you began to put yourself on the path of righteousness over time, good things began to happen and you found yourself a happier person than you were before you met Jesus. How many of you, that was your experience? It's okay to admit that. Yeah. That's the message of Proverbs. You live righteously, fear God, good things tend to happen, and you live a prosperous, blessed life. That is true. I say amen to it. It is true. Except when it's not. And that's why we have the book of Job in the Bible. You have to, you have to keep the book of Proverbs and the book of Job side by side. You gotta hold them in tension. You gotta keep them both together because the book of Proverbs doesn't tell the whole story. It's true. It's, gen it's generally true. You live righteously, fear God, good things tend to happen, you'll live a blessed, prosperous life. That is true. But you can't make a kind of guarantee of certitude out of that. Because then what begins to happen is you take it and you turn it around and you say, here's a person who is in deep, profound pain and sorrow and suffering. It must be because some, for some reason they deserve it. It must be because they're a sinner, because they've done something horrifically wrong. This was the theology of Job's three miserable comforters. And eventually God shows up and says, you have spoken incorrectly of Job and of me. That's a key verse you ought to underline in the book of Job. You have spoken incorrectly. So we got to hold these things in tension. To blame the victim is the work of Satan. Did you hear what I said? To blame the victim is the work of Satan. It's the work of darkness. Now, it's common. It's repeated throughout history. We do it over and over again all the time because we want to believe the world's very simple, that good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people. But it's undeniable that sometimes bad things happen to good people and sometimes the worst things happen to the best people. And that's the story of Job and that's the life of Jesus. To blame the victim is the work of Satan. It's the work of darkness. And Jesus says, I've not come to do the work of darkness. I'm, I've come to do the works of God. So once again, Jesus and his disciples, they're walking through this gate in Jerusalem, and the disciples notice this man who's been blind from birth. And on a day when there's already been two attempted stonings, his disciples ask the age-old question, the question that comes from darkness, the question that comes from the Satan. Who sent? 
Who can we blame? Who can we accuse? Who can we point the finger at? Rabbi, whose sin is responsible for this man's condition? Is it the man himself? Which is kind of interesting because he was born blind. And yet, believe it or not, there were rabbis who felt they had a, a good explanation for how that could happen. Was it this man's sin? Is it his sin that caused him to be born blind? Or was it the sin of his parents? You know, there was a Jewish theology that taught that God punishes children for the sins of the parents. You know that? You read about it in the Bible. In Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, in fact, I read it just a couple days ago in my, my morning reading. It says it pretty clearly that um, the sins of the parents will be visited upon the children to the third and the fourth generation. But not everyone agreed with that. <laughs> in fact, Ezekiel didn't agree with it. And you read about this in Ezekiel 18 where he's like, no, 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 no. I don't think that's right. I don't think that's the way we should think about it. I don't think that's the way we should think about God. You see, what the Jewish people knew about their scriptures, what you and I call the Old Testament, is that the Old Testament is inspired. Yes, it's, it's the word of God. It is scripture. But it's also in a conversation with itself. It's, it's working toward truth through argument. So you have on one hand the book of Proverbs saying, if you live well, do right, fear God, things are going to go well, you'll live a blessed, prosperous life. And then the book of Job comes around and says, mm, that's not always the case. And you've got Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5 says, God visits the sins of the, the parents on the children to the third and fourth generation. Ezekiel comes along and says, no, 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 that can't be right. Well, the final word of God is Jesus Christ. I believe that because I'm a Christian. And they ask Jesus, who sinned? Whose fault? Who's to blame? There must be an explanation here for why this has happened to this man. Who can we accuse? And Jesus, who is the light of the world, does not perpetuate that age-old question. And he says, fellas, you're, you're, you're asking the wrong question. The question itself is illegitimate. Here you've got a suffering person here. The question is not who's to blame. The question is how can we bring the mercy and grace of God here? That's the question we ought to ask. Not who's at fault, who can we accuse? The question is how can we bring God's mercy and grace to this moment? Jesus as the light of the world brings a whole new perspective to the works of God. The works of God, listen to me, the works of God are not about assigning blame. There are those who think so. There are those folks who believe that their calling, their vocation from the Lord is to walk around the world pointing out and finding as much sin as they can. These people are sinning over here. These people are, this, these people are wrong. These people are bad. And, uh, and I found all, look at all this sin I found. Look at all this sin I've been able to point out and locate. I'm doing the work of God. Jesus says, uh, that's the work of darkness. That's the work of the Satan. He says, you're asking the wrong question. And then Jesus goes into action. And he's going to heal the man. Now watch this. This is the cool part of the sermon. Everything else up until this point has been very uncool. But watch this. You're going to like this. Jesus heals this man, but he does it through a bit of theater. And I'm going to explain what he's doing in just a moment. But he first kneels down 
And he begins spitting into the dirt. By the way, this is the second time this day Jesus has done something with dirt. Maybe you can meditate on that this week. He spits into the dirt until it's no longer dirt. It becomes mud. And then he scoops up some of this mud made from his own, made from his own spittle. And he smears it on the guy's eyes. This guy who was already blind, he smears mud on the man's eyes. And then he tells the man, now go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which John, uh, John is very quick to tell us Siloam means scent. And I think that's a clue to us what's happening here. But he says, go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which was in the southern part of the city. They're up somewhere in the northern part of uh, the city. So this, it's kind of a considerable walk. This guy's got to go all the way around the Temple Mount to get to the Pool of Siloam. And by the way, they have recently discovered and excavated the Pool of Siloam uh, within our own lifetime. Within the last 20 years, they've discovered the Pool of Siloam. I've been there. It's, it's no bigger than this platform, but they found it. And the man goes and gets into the Pool of Siloam and he washes the mud out of his eyes and he comes back seeing. But watch what's happening, this whole thing. Why does Jesus heal the guy in this weird way? It's really bizarre, right? Aren't you glad um, I don't pray for you guys like this? I'll pray for you, hold on. <laughs> um, but there, this is not just a, this is not Jesus saying, hey, this is a novel way to do it. There's something happening here. What's happening, and this is what Jesus often does, it's an illustrated sermon. It's not just a miracle. It's, it's a sign that's pointing to something. And John likes to um, show us things through these miracles. So this man is an illustrated sermon to his disciples. Jesus is saying, watch this. I think you can learn from this. And he, um, he smears mud on the eyes of a man who's already blind. He already can't see. Why does he smear uh, mud on the man's eyes? Because now he's a picture of blindness. He's the picture of blindness, and this man represents us. He represents the world itself. He represents humanity. We're blind. We're walking in darkness. We're participating in walking in darkness. We're walking according to the spirit of accusation and blame and enmity and hatred of our fellow man. We're stumbling around blind, walking in darkness. So this man is you, and he's me. And when we go to the pool of the sent one, when we get baptized, when we get immersed in the person of Jesus Christ, we get that mud washed out of our eyes. And we're given new sight. And we begin to see the world. And we see one another with totally new eyes. And we begin to see by the light of Christ. For example, we see that suffering people are not to be blamed, but to be shown mercy. If you're blaming the suffering for their suffering... You've got mud in your eyes, and you need to go wash in the pool of Siloam in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Get that mud out of your eyes so you can see clearly. So Jesus heals this man, and as soon as he heals the man, there's another controversy. Because as soon as word gets out that Jesus has healed this man born blind, the Pharisees are on the scene to investigate. And... It turns out that this miracle happened not just on any particular day, but it happened on, you might have guessed it, the Sabbath. And that's going to be a problem for these Pharisees. At first, they take the stance, well, this whole thing is a hoax. This man was never blind to begin with. But then as they actually start to investigate and they pull in his friends and family members, mom and dad, the people who know this man, they find out, yeah, actually, this man was blind. 
and now he can see. So the next uh, tactic they use is they start to interrogate the man himself, and the man's like, whoa, 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 listen, I'm not a theologian. Like, I don't, I'm not, I'm not like trying to get in the middle of this debate. I know you guys are trying to assassinate this guy's character. I don't want to like get in the middle. I don't have an opinion. I don't have a theological position on this. Here's all I know. I was blind and now I can see. That's what I know. I was blind. Now I can see. So I think maybe this is a good guy. I think maybe he's from God. That's what I'm thinking. Oh, but I'm no theological genius. But I'm just thinking, uh, I was blind, now I can see he's probably from God. And they say, no, 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 no. You, you, you were born in your sin. You don't see, you don't know anything. We know, we're certain, we know, we know this man cannot be from God because he has violated the Sabbath. He made spittle on the Sabbath. That's work. You're not supposed to do work on the Sabbath. Furthermore, he healed you on the Sabbath, which means he's practicing medicine on the Sabbath. So he has violated the Sabbath. Therefore, we know that he cannot be from God and we attribute what he's doing to Satan. He's doing what he's doing by the power of Satan. And you know what they do at the end? They take this man and they banish him from the synagogue. He's done nothing but gotten healed. And he says, man, I'm healed. This guy might be from God. And they're like, no, you think he's from God? He violated the Sabbath, so we're banishing you from the synagogue. And they go on to blame and accuse Jesus of working with the devil. Now listen very carefully. I want to say this, and I hope it strikes you where it needs to strike you. 2,000 years ago, Jesus had religious opponents. And today, right now, Jesus has religious opponents. And the worst thing about it is they don't realize they're opposing the work of God. They think they're doing the work of God. That's the worst place to be. And let me tell you the hallmark of these Pharisees. The three things Pharisees love to do is stone, blame, and banish. You want to make a Pharisee happy? Let them stone someone. Let them blame someone. Let them banish someone. Throw somebody out of the church. That'll make a Pharisee giddy for weeks. They'd be so happy, so tickled to death to throw somebody out of the church. The three things Pharisees love to do, stone, blame, and banish. To that I say, let's not be like that. Amen? So what should we do? What we should do is simply say things like, man, I'm hardly qualified to judge and perceive the sins of other people. That's not my calling. That's not my task. I don't need to do that. I got that mud washed out of my eyes when I was baptized. Our task is not to look for sin, then seek to assign blame. Any blind fool can do that. Our task is to look for need and share the mercy of God. When our eyes have been baptized, what we see when we look at a fellow human being is not sin. We're aware that it's there. It's not that we're not aware the sin is there. We, we understand that it's there, but that's not what we're fixated on. That's not what we're attentive to and focused on. What we see instead is a person who's suffering. What we see is need, and what we see is the potential for the grace and mercy of God to come and help. Thomas Merton, who said a lot of wonderful things, he says this, the saint judges no man's sin because he does not know sin. 
he knows the mercy of God. He knows that his own mission on earth is to bring that mercy to all men. That's the work of God. And when you encounter Jesus and are immersed in the person of Jesus, and you get that mud washed out of your eyes, and you learn to see with new eyes, what we're seeing when we look at one another is not sin, not op opportunities for accusation. What we are seeing is the opportunity for the grace and mercy of God to win the day. We're not children of the night seeking to stone people with blame. Who sinned? Who sinned so I can accuse them? We're children of the light. We, we've washed that mud out of our eyes. And what we see is people to be loved, healed, and forgiven. So we don't throw stones of blame. We do all we can to help and heal in Jesus' name. Stand with me this evening. And we're going to prepare now to come to the table of communion. And what I want you to know about the communion table, the communion table is not a place of shame and blame. Much of religion comes smeared with that mud, and it's why a lot of people have walked away from the church and have sworn never to return because they have found in the church little more than mud smeared with our own spit, and we smear it on every person we can. But the communion table is not a place of blame and shame. The communion table is a place of grace and mercy. And we invite tonight whosoever will come. Everyone's invited to come. Well, Ryan, at this other church, at this other place, they banned me from the table. They banished me. Jesus all the time invited the banished to his table. And we're doing this in his name. So I invite you to come. We invite you to come. No matter who you are, no matter how messed up your life is, come. The only thing I ask is that you come with a mentality that, boy, I sure do need God's mercy. I need the mercy of God. And that's what solidifies us this evening. We're all sinners. We all need mercy. God in Christ offers us his mercy and his forgiveness in the flesh and blood of his son, Jesus Christ. So we come to this table not because we're worthy. We come to this table unworthy but invited and loved. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.